go back to Romans. Thank you, thank you, thank you for singing out. It honors God. He is worthy of it. But it it so encourages my heart. And drowns me out, and that's a good thing. That's a gift I did not get. So, thank you. I'm going to read from verse 1 to verse 18 in chapter 9. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham Because they are his offspring, but through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said about this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob, I have loved, but Esau, I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Thus far, God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, help us. Help me to preach your word faithfully, accurately, truthfully. Help us to hear it as Your Word. And believe it. And study it. And own it. May Your Spirit attend and bless the preaching of Your Word that disciples might be made, either brought to faith or grown in grace. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that as your word is rightly preached, you speak to your people with a living voice. So, do so, we pray. In Jesus' holy name. Amen. Judges sometimes make controversial decisions, don't they? (laughs) Some of you laughing, and that's good. Sometimes their decisions are good, but they're controversial because the people maybe have an ignorance of the law. Right? But sometimes their decisions are just bad and not in accord with the law. But in the courts of law, judges have freedom to be merciful to some and throw the book at others. In one instance, the defendant may be guilty but throw himself on the mercy of the court. 
and receive a lesser sentence. At other times, the judge might be just to throw the book at the defendant, meaning no mercy, giving the harshest sentence that the law allows. Now, arguing from the lesser to the greater, if earthly judges are free to exercise mercy and judgment according to the law, how much more is God free to exercise a just mercy and a just judgment in His rule over His creation? God is God. And part of His glory is His freedom to act in accord with His nature. See, we're in, the, we're in a study of the book of Romans. We've seen Paul show that Jew and Gentile are lost and need a Savior. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've seen that justification is by faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, such that we trust in Christ by a work of God's grace. We are pardoned from all of our sin and imputed the righteousness of Christ. We are adopted into God's family. We've seen God has sanctifies us. He breaks the power of sin over us and He begins to transform us into the image of Christ, the Spirit applying the Word to us. And we ended with that crescendo of celebration that ends Romans chapter 8, that nothing can separate us from His love. If you are God's child, it is a work of grace. And though you go through much suffering and hardship in this life, nothing can separate you from His love. And then we began in chapter 9. And chapter 9 can be a controversial chapter. It can certainly be very controversial if you take parts of it and pick it out out of its context. It'll it'll make it say things that it doesn't say. So let me remind you of where we are. I have a slide for that uh, just to show you where we are in the book of Romans. But Romans so far in 9, 1 to 5 is Paul's burden for Israel. And you saw that as I read. He has a great burden for his Jewish kinsmen that they might come to know Jesus as their Messiah. Because as he's writing that, most Jews don't believe in their own Messiah. And so then he turns the corner. And listen, this helps us rightly interpret Romans chapter 9 when we keep everything in context and when we see what Paul's argument is. So in 9.6a, after expressing his burden for the Jews and, and Christ coming through them, he says this. The, even though many of the Jews, most of the Jews have not believed in their Messiah, it is not that the word of God has failed. In other words, God's Word has not failed. God never fails. His Word never fails, right? And that's the thesis statement for chapters 9 through 11. So I would encourage you um, to have a Bible and to write in your Bible. And to, to make notes that you'll remember later. I would encourage you to have bulletins and take notes so you can remember what I'm telling you. Even if you don't write much down, you will remember. But remember that, that Paul's burden and he's seeking to answer the question, why don't all the Jews believe in their Messiah? And his thesis statement for this section in chapters 9 through 11 is that God's Word has not failed. And then we move on. 9, 6 to 13, where we've come already. Because the promise was only to the elect, which Paul calls the children of promise. There's always been this distinction in Israel between the true seed, the remnant, the one, the, the children of promise and the children of the flesh. And the children of Abraham, the true children of Abraham are the children of promise through flowing from Abraham down through Isaac and Jacob and on down into their sons. So we've seen that, that uh, that's true. And then today we'll look at 14 to 18. God is just in His sovereign granting of mercy to some. And we talked some about that last week, and I'll refer you back to that. But we'll be referring back to the text that we looked at last week because this is all a unit and it's connected, so we don't want to lose that. But the main point today, God is righteous in either granting mercy or judgment to sinners. God is righteous 
in either granting mercy or judgment to sinners. And just quick statement of review. What we all deserve is that second part. Judgment, condemnation, separation, wrath. That's what we all deserve. But look back in your Bibles, if you will. Paul's continuing his argument, and he does this occasionally in Romans, but he says, what shall we say then? And if you'll remember, I talked about, some people try to make Romans 9 simply about corporate election. About groups of people. Some try to make it about, this is not about individual salvation, but how these, these people were used in accomplishing the plan of redemption. Right. Others try to satisfy the tension by saying, well, yeah, God chose a people, but it was because he looked down through the tunnel of time to see who would believe and he chose them. Apart from grace, nobody's going to believe there would be nobody to choose. Right. But what again, what we see in this text is what we've seen in previous texts is that we're dealing with individuals here. That's why it's controversial or can be. He ended verse 13 with Jacob. I have loved and Esau I have hated. And then he he anticipates if we're talking about individuals first and through them, yes, what God does in them. But if we're talking about individuals first and we've ended that previous section by Jacob, God loved and Esau he hated. Then Paul is anticipating the objection that most people have to the doctrine of election when they first hear it. So we see in Paul's anticipated objection that we're on the right track, talking about individuals here. And he says this, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Now, in this section, talking about verse 14 The statement is really that God is just in his exercise of sovereign mercy. Paul's doing that in a way where he's using a question to make a statement. Right? And you can see that. And I'll try to bring some of that out. But Paul makes a statement with question and answer in verse 14. And the statement is God is righteous in both mercy and judgment. God, now look back at verse 13. God was righteous in choosing Jacob and rejecting Esau. He was righteous in loving Jacob and hating Esau. And so if you remember that text up there, it was Rebekah's twins. Jacob and Esau, God said the older will serve the younger. And that was that God's purpose and election might continue, not because of what we do. What we do is not what makes the difference. It's what God does. And that God is righteous and sovereign in his choice. And remember, I said this too. And I, the, the amazing thing is not that God hated Esau. That's not the amazing thing. The amazing thing is that he didn't hate Jacob. If you go read the story, because he's as much of a cheat and a rascal, you know, so the difference wasn't in Jacob. And that's Paul's point. It's God's purpose of election. God is creating his covenant people through these individuals. It's the line of promise that we're talking about. And he, and he anticipates our objection. If we're just thinking as natural people, sometimes we would come away from something like this and say, that's not fair. But we don't want fair You don't want fair in God's presence. Don't cry out, treat me as my sins deserve. Be fair. You just don't want fair. You want grace. You want mercy. Okay? That's what you want. But he says, is there injustice on God's part? Is God being unjust to only... Look at me. Is the doctrine of election unjust? Is God being unjust to only choose some? No. He's not being unjust. He's being merciful. Right? But Paul says this. Is there any injustice in God? We'll stop right there for just a second. This, just the question is put together with a particular Greek particle that expects a no answer. Whenever this little Greek particle may, if you know what I'm talking about, is in a question, then the answer to that question is supposed to be no. Okay, so there's already that in the construction of the question. Paul expects us to answer no. Is there injustice on God's part? No. But then he follows up that construction with the strongest possible negative in the Greek. By no means, meaning absolutely not. God forbid. We've already talked about that in our study from Romans. But this is the strongest Way to say no to something in the Greek language. Is God unjust to love Jacob and hate Esau? 
Absolutely not. In fact, He is completely just and completely righteous and completely holy in everything that He does. Is it unjust for God to choose some for salvation and not all? No, absolutely not. And listen, we know this. I mean, Abraham's plea. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? What's the answer to that? Yes, he will always do right. He will always do righteously. He will always be holy and just and righteous. That's who he is. But he is not being unjust. And as I've said before, the amazing thing should be that he chose anyone. That he had mercy on anyone. Because we have to get this through our head. None of us deserve it. We deserve condemnation because we have broken his law. So we know from his nature that he's not breaking his law. But we're going to see Paul now is going to structure this in a way to answer that question. So I've got a slide about the structure. I'll give this to you right quick. It doesn't answer all the questions to see the structure, but it helps you see what we're doing here. So what we have in Romans 9, 14 to 18 is a statement in the form of a question. We've already seen that. And the statement would be, God is just or holy in choosing some. He is righteous in choosing some. That would be the statement. And then the structure of the passage is, is two um, answers to that. Two, two ways of showing from the scripture that God is righteous in, in the doctrine of election, if you want to put it that way. So look at, and this is why I'm telling you to write in your Bibles. Look in verse 15. The very first word is for. And then look in verse 16. The first two words are so then. And then look in verse 17. The very first word is for. And in verse 18, the very first two words are so then. So you see too many arguments there. Go back to the structure slide of, of these verses. There we go. This is how the text is laid out. Verse 14 makes a statement. God is righteous in all his doings and righteous in the doctrine of election. And then verses 15 to 16 are one argument for so then. And verses 17 to 18 are another mini-argument for and so then. So we're going to see two examples. We're going to see Moses used as to one to whom mercy is given and through Moses the children of Israel. And Moses would relate to Jacob in verse 13. And then we're going to see Pharaoh used as one who receives justice and he would relate to Esau in verse 13. But hopefully that's helpful to just kind of see the structure. We have a statement made and then two two many arguments proving that that statement is true. God is just in choosing some. He is just in the granting of his mercy. God is not unjust in having mercy on some and not on others. So let's look at the first line of argument. Moses and just mercy. Look in verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. I am sovereign over my exercise of mercy. So how does that prove that God is righteous? Well, let's, let's look back at Exodus 33, 19. That's where, that's where he's quoting from, is Exodus Thirty-three, nineteen, And in this context, you know that Moses has been on the mountain receiving the law. The children of Israel have gotten impatient and decided he's not coming back. And the golden calf is made and they're, they descended into idolatry right quick. Moses comes down, sees the idolatry, breaks the tablets, rebukes them. And then God is going to renew the covenant with Moses. But Moses is presently interceding for Israel and asking God to be merciful And the Lord, he does forgive. But in that context, Moses prays something. Now watch this in verse 18 and 19. 
And we want to look, we want to see what Moses asked for and how God answers that. And so how his name is connected to his glory, how his, his, this quote is connected to his glory. So Moses said in Exodus thirty-three, eighteen, and 19, please show me your glory. And God says this. Now watch this. I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord. And when you see Lord in English translations in all caps, that's Yahweh. That's the tetragrammaton. In English, it would be Y-H-W-H. Now, that's not the Hebrew letters. But, but that's the, the divine name. I am who I am. He revealed himself to Moses. Right? In Exodus 3.14. But he's going to proclaim that name. And in proclaiming that name, look what he says. So, Moses said, I want to see your glory. And we know Moses can't see his face and live. And that's all part of the story. I'll let you go read that. But in Moses requesting to see God's glory, what God reveals to him, his goodness and his name. You see, his name is part of that glory. And you can see that the freedom of God is part of that glory in his judgment. It says this, God said, and this is what Paul quotes, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And one of the things Paul is showing there is not there nothing new about how God's acting here. This has always been the case in Israel, that there's been a discrimination. There's been a ju- not a, not a sinful discrimination, but there's been a judgment between the remnant and the true Israelites and the just the flesh Israelites, but had no true relationship to God. But look at it. Part of what it means to be God and Lord there is to be sovereign over his mercy. He has God has a holy freedom. Notice I said a holy freedom. As God to either be merciful or condemn. And what we deserve is for him to condemn. That's how that we brought to our salvation. We brought the mess. We brought the sin. We brought the desert of judgment. Remember, we all deserve to be condemned. Let me just pause a minute and ask you, why? I mean, I've given a sort of a summary answer. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But dig into that a little deeper. Why do we all deserve to be condemned? Well, we have hated God. John says this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. But we have all broken his law in thought, word, and deed. We have looked to other things for security and pleasure. We've had other gods in our lives. We've, we've dishonored his name. We've not kept his day. We've been unjustly angry. We've, we've lied and stolen and coveted and sought all manner of other gods. In other words, places where we will anchor our security and our happiness. The reason we deserve condemnation is God is is holy and just and righteous and pure. And his righteous response to sin has to be has to be wrath. It has to be condemnation. He can't just sweep it under the rug. And that's what you'll see him say here in a minute. We deserve to be condemned because we're born in sin and we've all broken his law. All have sin. Sin meaning the breaking of God's law, not keeping it. Positively in thought, word, and deed, but breaking it. Not loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, but not loving Him, hating Him. So we deserve condemnation. The soul that sins shall die, the Scripture says. The wages of sin is death. We've seen that in Romans. The payoff for sin is condemnation. Physical death, spiritual death. Hell. Don't be afraid to talk about scriptural realities. Right? That's what we all deserve. Until you embrace that, the gospel won't be good news to you. But I'm telling you, whether or not you believe me or not, whether or not you think all this is funny or not, this is who God is and this is who you will stand before and answer to. So our, our situation is we are under condemnation, but God sent His Son. This is how God loved the world, it says in, in John 3.16. That's a better Interpret, uh, translation of it. 
In this manner, God loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever does the best he can, whosoever's good works outweigh his bad works. No, whosoever believes in him, whose son, Jesus, may not perish, but have everlasting life. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried. He was raised the third day according to the Scriptures. Provable fact. Most provable fact in history. And salvation is through trusting in Jesus. Are you trusting in Jesus this morning? Have you turned from going your own way and pursuing your own thing and hoping God will rubber stamp that to being convicted of your sin such that you hate it and you turn to God in, in conviction and, and cry out for mercy and find forgiveness in, in the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you trusting in Jesus Christ this morning? If so, you're not condemned. There's no condemnation left for you. Romans 8.1. We've already seen that. But if you're not trusting in Jesus Christ this morning, you need to think seriously about this issue and deal with it. Because only one has been raised from the dead. Only one has paid the penalty of sin. Only one offers you a free salvation. And you'll find it in Jesus or you won't find it. And you'll never be able to stand on your own two feet before a holy God and satisfy Him. Because we deserve to be condemned. But God is merciful Though He owes it to none, He's merciful to some. And as God, He's free to be sovereign over His mercy. Look, look, how, look what happened. So, God told Moses what He was going to do. He's going to make His goodness pass before Him and proclaim His name. And He says the quote, I will be gracious to whom I be gracious and show mercy on whom I show mercy. Now, when it actually happened in Exodus 34, 5 and 7, it says this. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Him there. We read stuff like that and we just ought to say, whoa. Wow. Now watch what the Lord did. And it says, Moses said, show me your glory. God's proclaiming his name. Name, glory, attached. Right? The Lord is standing there and the Lord proclaimed the name of the Lord, Yahweh. And the Lord passed before him, hiding him in the cleft of the rock. So we'd only see his back. That's context. I'll let you read that. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. Now watch how the Lord describes himself. Watch how he shows Moses his glory. Watch how he proclaims his name and proclaims his freedom as God to be merciful. He says this, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, keeping steadfast love for thousands or thousands of generations and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. We love that half, don't we? We want to wash the other one out. But we love that. Look how God reveals Himself. I am gracious and merciful and forgiving. And I can be merciful and forgiving because of who I am and because of what I've done in my Son the Lamb of God. But look, there's a transition. So he not only proclaims his freedom to be merciful, but also his freedom to be just in judgment. He says, but he's still describing himself who will by no means clear the guilty. God's not your grandparent. Grandparents just seep. Sweep the children's sins under the rug. They're just being precious. They're just expressing themselves. It's not the same people that raised you. They're trying to get into heaven now. Right? It's your job to punish the kids and it's their job to spoil them. But grandparents, don't be at odds with the parents, please. But God says, listen, I'm not just going to swipe the slate clean here. I'm not going to call evil good. And good evil. I'm not going to just sweep sin under the rug. I, will, I have to judge sin because I'm holy and righteous and pure. But still describing the Lord who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That does not mean that he's punishing the children for the father's sins. Right. But. Boil it down. The habits of the father tend to be reproduced in the child. You're, 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 you're making disciples whether you want to or not. You're either discipling your children to be little sinners or Pharisees, or you're discipling them to be Christians and follow Jesus. 
So the, the way things go is kids, what kids want to be like their daddy or a girl's mommy. But visiting the iniquity of the, father, the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Only grace can break that pattern and come in and save and change the direction. And I know that's happened in many of our families. But when Moses said, show me your glory, God said, here's my name. Here's my goodness. Here's what all that means. I will be merciful to who I will be merciful. And I am completely just and righteous to do so. God, the true God, as Lord, is God of both righteous mercy and righteous condemnation. God is sovereign and free to grant or withhold mercy. You've got to get it out of your head that you deserve mercy. You've got to get it out of your head that if God would save one, He has to save all. Because none of that is true. The amazing thing is that He saved anybody. The amazing thing is that you have the privilege. This says nothing about who's preaching. But you, as a creator, creature of God, have the privilege of sitting under the gospel being preached. Because He's been merciful and long-suffering and kind and patient with you to bring you to that point. Whether I'm preaching it or Brian's preaching it or somebody else is preaching it. But God, as the true God, is sovereign, righteous over mercy and over condemnation. So look at Paul's. Look back in Romans 9. That's how he's using the quote. This is how God has always revealed himself. It's always been true that he's holy, righteous and just and that he exercises a just mercy and a just judgment. And none can call him to account what a scripture say. None can say, what have you done? Because he's God and he's holy. And he's pure. So the first conclusion, look in verse 16. So then it depends. Watch. Mercy depends not on... Watch this. Watch this. Watch this. It depends not on the human will. Stop. It doesn't depend on a human decision. The tunnel of time theology falls flat. God's not looking to see what you would do and reacting to it. It does not depend... On human will or running is literal, but exertion. Human will or works. But on God, God's the one, as we said last time, who makes the difference. And it's completely just and righteous for Him to do so. This is taking us back up to 11. In the twins, though, verse 11. Though they were not yet born and having done nothing good or evil. Listen, I told you last week. It isn't, it isn't though, as though God didn't know what they were going to do. What this is telling us is that His decisions are not based on what they did but on His purpose of election. And then in verse 16, So then the conclusion from our seeing Moses and Moses receiving mercy and God revealing His name and His righteousness and His sovereign mercy, Paul concludes, So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who shows mercy. So the first conclusion reiterates verses 11 and 12. Human choice or effort are not the basis on which God's merciful promise is received, his choice to have mercy is solely due to His grace, not anything foreseen in us. So that's why the Scriptures show us and the catechisms teach us that salvation is a work of His grace. We believe because He loved us first. We believe because He brings the gospel into our situation and we're born again through it. And the fruit of that being born again is repentance and faith, not the other way around. So the, but the, the difference maker is God and His sovereign act of mercy that makes the difference. This is, listen, we're just describing unconditional election. We, we, we studied through the doctrines of grace on Sunday nights. I think those are still on the website if you want to look at them. But God's saying, if I just, if, if He just looked at me, all I could ever have is condemnation. Because that's what I deserve. But to the praise of His glorious grace, Ephesians 1. Before the foundation of the world, He said His love on me and He was righteous to do so. And it ain't because I'm anything special or deserve it. No. Same with you if you're believing in Christ. We were given to His Son. Son came to save us. Spirit applies that redemption through the preaching of the gospel. But God is sovereign over His mercy and He makes the difference. Now, so He's been merciful. We've seen an illustration of mercy with Moses. We've got to quickly look at the illustration of justice. Now he turns to Pharaoh. This is the second part of the argument on why God is righteous and not unjust in choosing Jacob and rejecting Esau. Look at verse 17. 
Again, it says, before he said, for he says to Moses, he's quoting scripture. And now he says, we got the four again. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up to show my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. For this very purpose, I have raised you up. Did Pharaoh deserve to be king of Egypt? No. Should have been squashed, right? But God's working out his sovereign plan of the deliverance of his people through a hard and stubborn-hearted Pharaoh. And through hardening of him, he will bring about his people's deliverance or redemption that will picture our redemption, but his the Exodus from Egypt. But when it says, I raised you up, this is this is quoting Exodus nine sixteen, and this right here means Pharaoh's appearance in history. And ascension to the throne was in accordance with and determined by God's will. I have elevated you to the throne. And through you, like in a different way, but like he did with Moses, his name and his glory and his power is going to be proclaimed. Y'all know that God is sovereign over kings, right? And that's presidents too, right? When God wants to judge a nation, he gives them wicked rulers. We're wicked, we have wicked rulers. We deserve them. We are under judgment because we have forsaken the Lord. Right? God raises up kings and he takes them down. We, can, we, we, can, we pray and we vote in a certain direction, but when the outcome comes, we know that either mercy or judgment, that's God's will being displayed for us. He's sovereign over kings. And he raised up Pharaoh and he is going to display his utter victory in smashing all of the idolatry of Egypt and delivering his people from their captivity. He's going to show Pharaoh that he's not God, regardless of what he might claim. And that all these things in creation that they worship, God's going to make them miserable with them and triumph over them. So it's not going to be a competition. It's going to be a display of the glory of the Lord. The Lord had already told Moses what he was going to do with Pharaoh. And remember, Pharaoh deserves to be judged and condemned and hardened, just like all the rest of us. But in in Exodus 4.21, the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power. But I will harden his heart, and he will not let the people go. See, the divine purpose for Pharaoh's reign was that Pharaoh would be an instrument through which the Lord would show his power and proclaim his name, that he is the only true, sovereign, righteous, holy God. And even in the Exodus, you see what we have in the text and what we see in in verse 13. Jacob loved Esau and Esau I hated. You see the hardening of one and the setting free of the other. Even in the Exodus, you see God's power exerted in both mercy for Israel and judgment on Pharaoh and Egypt. So he comes to the second conclusion. I'm going to let you go read that story, but he comes to the second conclusion. So, he has mercy... On whoever we, on whomever he wills, and he's righteous to do so. Remember, verse 14. And he hardens whomever he wills, and he's righteous to do so. Verse 14. We all deserve the hardening part, (laughs) but some receive mercy. See, the hardening, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart relates to the hardening of many Israelites in Paul's day. You see what he's doing and how he's wrapping this all together. Because there's a partial hardening on Israel, he'll say, until all the Gentiles come in. So that hardening, Pharaoh's just an illustration of what he's doing in extending his judgment, in hardening, and Israel's a picture of that. So just as Pharaoh was hardened to cause the salvation of Israel, so Israel is hardened to cause the salvation of the Gentiles. And we'll see that play out as we study the rest of of the section. But think about this. In fact, the partial hardening of the Jews resulted in the cross, didn't it? It brought about salvation through those instruments of the Jewish leaders and a lot of the people going along with them and the Roman Empire crucifying the very Lord of glory. This is the way God brought about the cross. 
and worked everything out in accord with his plan. We've seen that in Acts. So look back at verse 18. Mercy on some, hardens some. Remember, the cause for marveling and awe is that he had mercy on some. And that any, not all are hardened. We should all be hardened. But he has mercy. Mercy to those who don't deserve it. Moses didn't deserve it. The Israelites in the Old Covenant didn't deserve it. No one who's on whom God has had mercy. By very definition, mercy can't be deserved. Grace is something that can't be deserved. You can't earn it. Mercy to those who don't deserve it. How about you? You say, well, I'm not elect, so he won't let me come to Christ. That's foolishness. You can't see him with the sovereignty of God that way. God is sovereign, but man is responsible. If God is pricking your heart this morning, dare not turn him away. You need to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. And listen, if you're on the flip side of that and you're sitting in here and you think all this is foolishness and this gospel is crazy and I don't believe in Jesus, he's not the only way. God said you'd respond that way. That's a sign of hardened heart. It's, a, it's not a good sign for you to think the gospel is foolishness. It's a dangerous place to be. Mercy to those who don't deserve it and hardening to those who, because of sin, do deserve it. Deserve condemnation. Some get mercy. Others get justice. But here's, here's my last point, and I'll look to a little bit of application. Nobody gets injustice. Nobody's treated wrongly. Everybody is treated justly. Look at the slide I have for that. Here's justice and injustice. Nobody gets injustice. God is just. He will never be unjust. Within the realm of justice, you have those outside of Christ and those in Christ. By virtue of what we deserve outside of Christ. Remember, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Outside of Christ, we deserve judgment and condemnation. Why? Because the law has been broken. Sin must be punished. And justice can never be satisfied by us. So we, and if we're left outside of Christ, we would, we would deserve and get condemnation. But in Christ, notice it's under the heading of justice. We sang it. Justice has been satisfied. Right? In Christ, those who don't deserve it, through faith in Jesus Christ, have received salvation and mercy. For them, the law has been kept. Christ fulfilled the law in thought, word, and deed, and that righteousness is credited to us. And sin has been punished fully because the God-man paid for it. So that justice has been satisfied. So you have a just mercy and a just judgment. But nobody is treated unjustly. You will never be able to accuse God of wrong. He will always do right. And He's made a way for us to have mercy and grace. And that's through faith. In His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is free to choose those upon whom He will have mercy. And none of them, none of us, not you, not your beautiful little children, not any of us deserve it. But He's saving a people from every tribe, nation, language, all around the globe who will be in the new heavens and the new earth, and it's an innumerable multitude. This doctrine of election is given to us because it's true, number one. And number two, so that you'll rest in Him. Salvation was His idea. He planned it. He worked it out. He's applied it. He'll finish it. We sang it, right? Complete in Him. I will be glorified. He'll finish it. So how should we... Think about quickly in a few points of application. And we're going to continue to study these texts so they'll wrap together as we go. And I encourage you, if you have questions about this stuff, please ask. Please talk about it. You will not get God's grace the way you should get God's grace without some study and digging and talking with one another. And talking with us.
But here's, here's how we should respond to the truth of God's righteousness in, the, in election, in, in having mercy and compassion on some and giving justice to others. Number one, humility. Nothing humbles us like this. That's why we fight against it so much, right? We want to have something to do with it. In some kind of way, it had to rest with my decision. Though you make a decision, it's because God works grace in you. It didn't rest on your decision because he's already said it's not depending on human will. Look back at verse 16 if you're struggling with that. See, without here's my point. Without humility, we will never see the glory of the doctrine of election. Therefore, we will never have the proper celebration of his grace. And the incredible soul rest in his sovereignty that he's provided. We will never have the confidence in life that we will have if we embrace his sovereignty. And we'll never be the witness we should be. Because we'll still lay some of the weight on ourselves, right? We will never embrace his name and his glory the way we should until we say... I don't understand it all, but I see your word teaches it, and I embrace it. So do we approach this doctrine? And a lot of people do when it's explained. Their response is, that's not fair, that's not righteous. You accuse God of unrighteousness, and you better be careful when you do that. Do we approach this by thinking he's unrighteous in his dealings with us? He's not. Or... Do we approach him in humility, recognizing that we have received his immeasurable love in Christ Jesus, even though we deserved his just condemnation, that we are forgiven through faith and even that faith was a gift to us. And that because of it, we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ and cleansed from all of our sin, all because God has sovereignly chosen to be merciful. Is God unjust? And giving it to some and withholding it from others. Absolutely not. Remember, he owes mercy to no one. He is just in both granting mercy and administering justice. This is what the Bible teaches about his goodness, his name, and his glory. This is the way he has revealed himself in his word. And if you want to see justice and mercy come together and kiss, you look at the cross. Because justice was satisfied for God's people on that cross. And you don't have to struggle with whether or not you're elect. God commands all people everywhere to repent and trust in Jesus. And he promises to forgive you and save you if you do. And he works that in you. And you'll never be saved without turning and trusting in Jesus. And my exhortation to you every Lord's Day is turn and trust in Jesus. Take these things seriously. Turn to Christ and receive salvation. You need it. It's here. Have it in Him. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. But God's grace comes to us through humility. He resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And even the humility He requires, He works in us. It's so cool. So we should be, we, this should humble us and give us a wow over his mercy and grace to us. Number two, then it should enhance our worship. If you go back and read the text after God appeared and proclaimed his name, this was Moses' response. He bowed and he worshiped. That should be our reaction to God's declaration of his sovereign mercy. Worship. One of the things this doctrine will do with our hearts when we mix it with the gospel, and we have, therefore, that humility I've just talked about, it will produce a deep and satisfying worship of God if the Spirit's at work in you. The satisfaction you look for is found in the glory of your God, which He proclaimed to Moses and Paul is using, of the one who has mercy and compassion on sinners, and yet is sovereign. But that offer is before you today. Will you be humble enough to receive it, and will you look to him and 
worship him. And then the last one is following my question, repentance. Do you want mercy and salvation? Then run to Christ. Like the old guy preaching when Spurgeon was converted, look to Christ. Look away from self. Look to Him. Receive forgiveness. Receive clothing in His righteousness. Receive reconciliation with God through faith as a free gift. Will you have Him? He receives. His Word tells us. He receives all who come to Him in faith. Will you come to Him in faith this morning? Turn and trust Him. We'll keep studying these things. You'll see where we're going. We know that we're doing the right thing. We'll see there's a remnant chosen by grace when we get to chapter 11. But I'm just going to end with a verse. We're going to find this in chapter 11, but I think it's good to sort of bring it into the picture now. Verse 11, 22. It says, Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Both are true. Justice and mercy. Right? Salvation, condemnation, all holy, righteous, and pure. Note the kindness and severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen. But God's kindness to you who have faith in Christ, provided you continue in His kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. Believer, marvel at His glory. Dwell in His saving kindness. Sovereign mercy extended to you through Christ. The sovereign judge of the universe has chosen to have mercy on your soul. And in His court, you have mercy and grace in Christ. Trust and rest in Him. To live is Christ. Oh, you can do better than that. To live is Christ. Amen. We've got to be ready to die before we're ready to live. Let's pray. Lord, do what only You can do. Work with Your Spirit in the hearts of Your people to bring about repentance and faith, growth and grace. A more rested posture in Your mercy as a result of us studying through these things. I pray for those who think that Things in the church are to be ignored. The gospel is to be ignored. Who think that some of the things, maybe some of the things going on here today were funny. Um, I pray for repentance for those folks. I pray for us, Lord, as your people, that this shows us we need to be people of your book. Help us to press in and grow and grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And help us to rest in your mercy. Convert souls. Bring souls to faith that don't know you. Grow in grace those of us who do. And then through us, Lord, shine the light of the gospel of the glory of God in Jesus Christ to those we come into contact with. Lord, bless us and do what only you can do through your word by your spirit applying it. We give you the praise.